Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, and chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you once again for this day that you have made. And now in the hearing of your word, help us to hear your word for us. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Uh, we are continuing today with our uh, readings through the narrative lectionary. And today we're uh, skipping ahead from the 
story of the creation of Adam and Eve all the way to the story of Abraham and Sarah. A lot has happened in these intervening chapters, uh, but we can summarize by saying that the initial harmony and unity of creation between God and Adam and Eve and all of creation has now been broken. All of creation has been broken. And rather than enjoying the comforts and the abundance of the Garden of Eden, humanity must now struggle with the challenges of surviving in a harsh environment. And so in the book of Genesis, beginning with the 12th chapter, it pivots from this larger story of humanity to focus on the story of one particular family, that of Abraham and Sarah. And God chooses Abraham and Sarah and promises them that through their descendants, who will be as countless as the stars in the sky, that they will be a blessing to all peoples, that God is going to bless all the families of the earth through them. As we pick up their story, at this point in their lives, even though they have acquired large uh, numbers of flocks and other possessions, they have no children and they do not own any land. And because of their advanced age, it seems very unlikely, if not impossible, that the promise that God has made of descendants can be fulfilled. Yet at the end of chapter 17, God reaffirms his promise of descendants to the 99-year-old Abraham and reassures him that Sarah will indeed have a son in about a year and that God will establish his covenant with that child. And so, as a sign of this promise, this covenant, Abraham and the rest of the men of his household get circumcised, and that brings us to our reading this morning. Abraham is sitting by the door outside the tent under a tree. It's a hot day, so he's probably napping, uh, enjoying the cool breeze, taking it easy, recovering from his, uh, I guess we can call it his minor surgical procedure. And all of a sudden, he sees three strangers, and he runs to them and offers them a little water to wash their feet, some rest under the tree, and a morsel of bread to refresh themselves. I know that today, if uh, three strangers show up unexpectedly at our front door, uh, we're likely to run back into the house and, and lock the doors. Um, but in those days, this is common courtesy. This is what you do to strangers who show up. Uh, in fact, the welcoming and showing kindness to strangers uh, is one of the key commands of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. Deuteronomy 10, 19, you shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Romans 12, 13, extend hospitality to strangers. And perhaps the writer of Hebrews was thinking about this passage when he wrote, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And so once the strangers accept Abraham's offer, he goes into this kind of just surprising, frenetic hyperdrive of activity. He's 99 years old. He's just had surgery. But he goes, notice all the, the, the quickness with which everything is happening here. He goes quickly to Sarah and he tells her, quick, make some cakes. 
He then runs to the herd, to the flocks, and we're told that the calf is prepared quickly. Abraham had offered, you know, a little bit of water, a morsel of bread, and yet instead he rushes about to prepare an extravagant, enormous feast for his guests. For example, he tells Sarah to prepare flatbread using three seahs of flour. A seah, I discovered, is equivalent to about two gallons. So if my math is right, this is like 30 pounds of flour. And not just flour, but fine flour. flour. That's a lot. This is the special kind of flour that was used uh, to make bread for King Solomon. It's the bread that God speaks of, the kind of bread that he would feed Jerusalem with in Ezekiel. And so he's asking, you know, to prepare. I I don't even know how much bread that makes, but that's a lot. This is not a morsel of bread. It's enough to feed a small village. And furthermore, basic hospitality does not require any meat be served, just a little water and a morsel of bread. And yet here he is going to the herd and he personally selects a tender and good calf. He doesn't even go for, you know, a lamb or a a goat, a cheaper animal. He goes for the, the prime grade A tender and good calf. 30 pounds of top grade meat. It's a lot. And on top of that, he brings curds and milk in addition to the water. He serves his guests himself and stands there ready like a waiter at a restaurant, even though Abraham has many servants. Why does he do all of this? Why does he go so overboard? As we sometimes say in our house, what the dog doing? My kids say that, not me. It may be that Abraham is an incredibly generous host. More likely, however, is that he has immediately recognized that these are no ordinary strangers. Their extraordinary divine nature gets pointed out to us grammatically. In verse 1, for example, we're told that the Lord Yahweh appeared to Abraham But in verse 2, it tells us that it was three men. Abraham runs toward them, and yet he addresses them in the singular, O Lord. Abraham alternates between using the singular and the plural to refer to them. And they sometimes speak as three in one, they said, although it's one person speaking. And at other times, it's a single person speaking, the Lord said. And so this mix of singular and plural with the three and one has led many Christians, understandably, to see in this encounter an early manifestation of the triune God. Whatever the case may be, Abraham recognizes that this is God or one who speaks on behalf of the Lord, and he appears to be accompanied by two angels who he will discover later are on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah for judgment. Now, what really intrigued me this week about our reading today is the first of three questions that is asked of Abraham. Where is Sarah, your wife? Where is Sarah, your wife? If an ordinary stranger asked this question, this personal question, the right answer would be, it's none of your business. Why are you asking about my wife? 
But because it's the Lord who asks, there must be some reason than simply wanting to know where she is. In the book of Genesis, this is now the third time that God is asking about the whereabouts of another person. Remember, the first time was after Adam and Eve had disobeyed and had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God asked Adam, where are you? And the second time God asked was Cain. After Cain had killed his brother Abel and God said to him, where is Abel, your brother? And now he asks, where is Sarah, your wife? Each time God asks, it's not because he doesn't know where they are. It's not that God doesn't know where they're hiding. Not all questions are asked to gain some unknown piece of information. I can remember uh, when one of our kids was uh, little, he uh, or she um, decided to cut their hair uh, using scissors and try to hide the evidence uh, in a small garbage can. When you're little, it is very difficult to hide that kind of evidence. Uh, not to mention the fact that <laughs> the haircut, you know, didn't look right. Um, so when my wife and I discovered hair basically all over the floor, um, we asked her, or him, um, what were you doing? What were you doing? We weren't asking because we didn't know the answer. We knew the answer. We were not asking to establish unknown facts. Rather, we were extending an invitation for conversation. We were providing an opportunity for admission and confession. And I think that's what God is doing here. I actually tested this out. So on Thursday, uh, one of my neighbors, Charles, uh, invited me to his house to watch the football game uh, between the Buffalo Bills and the Los Angeles Rams. Um, more precisely, I should say, someone Charles had invited, invited me to watch the game at Charles's house. And now that I think about it, I'm not sure if that person was invited by Charles or if he invited himself. Anyway, um, with this sermon in mind, uh, when I walked into Charles's home, uh, I deliberately posed an awkward question like this. So, hey, Charles, where is Boaz, your wife? <laughs> Who talks like that, right? Now, I don't know what Charles thought exactly, but he answered, she's in France. Now, if that's all he said, or I just kind of left that there and didn't ask any follow-up questions, it would be very, very weird, right? That is not how you talk with each other. And so, as you might expect, before I could even ask Charles, oh, what's she doing in France? He went to explain that she's there for a conference, that she left Tuesday, she's coming back next Wednesday, he's got the kids all by himself, he's got the you know, parents helping him out. Like, you know, he gave me a full explanation of what was going on, and then I asked him questions, and we had a nice conversation. That's how these kinds of questions are supposed to be answered. Where's Sarah, your wife? Abraham's response, she's in the tent. That's it. 
it's, 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 it's kind of like those frustrating answers you get from your uh, teenage sons, right? How is school? If you're lucky, you might get okay. A lot of times you might just get a grunt, like, mm, right? Where's Sarah, your wife? She's in the tent. If you're married or live with someone, do you do the hosting and welcoming by yourself when you have guests? Now, it is true that uh, the interaction between men and women were not as uh, informal as it is with, with us today. But it's odd that she's not a part of this welcoming. In fact, did you notice that in verse 8, that when Adam, uh, Abraham served his guests, he took the curds and the milk and the meat, but there is no mention made of the cakes that he had told Sarah to make. He doesn't bring those. Maybe she decided not to make those cakes, the flatbread. Because you know, who asked their wife to prepare 30 pounds of flour for three guests? Is the whole church coming? No, it's just, just three guys. Maybe Sarah made just a few loaves like any reasonable person, served them and went right back into the tent. She's in the tent suggests that something is not quite right. If you recall, God originally promised Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But after decades of waiting, after decades of not having children, it appears that Abraham has perceived this promise of God of blessing and of children was for him and him alone. That it didn't matter who the mother is. That it did not apply to Sarah, his wife. At one point, he even suggests to God, here's another better idea, God. Instead of Sarah, how about Eleazar? He's my faithful servant. I can make him my legal heir. And later when Sarah suggested, let's have a child through surrogacy using Hagar, my servant, Abraham made no protest. And we can't forget that twice, Abraham tried to pass off Sarah as his sister so he himself would not get in trouble. He didn't care that she might, she was in all likelihood going to end up in a harem just as long as he survived just as long as he could have descendants. It didn't matter what happened to Sarah. He's definitely not candidate for husband of the year. He failed to remember that Sarah and he are supposed to be covenantal partners and allies. That she is a helper made a suitable helper made for him. They are to be glued together as one flesh, that any blessing, that any promise of children and descendants to Abraham necessarily means that it's going to involve Sarah. But Abraham seems to have forgotten. And I think this is why Sarah laughs. She's laughing in disbelief. Because yes, of course, she can't believe that she's going to get pregnant at this old age. But I think she's also laughing at the fact that her husband did not even mention this to her. 
at the end of chapter 17, God said, very specifically, I will bless Sarah, Abraham. I'm going to give you a son by Sarah. I will bless Sarah, and she, Sarah, shall become the mother of many nations. King shall come from Sarah. God highlights that it's going to be Sarah, not just any child or any descendant, but that it's going to be through Sarah. Now, that's an important piece of information. It's an incredible promise and vision, hope that you want to pass on to your wife. But Abraham did not. Now, I suppose a husband failing to communicate information news to their wives is kind of par for the course. That's what husbands do. And I think this is also why God follows up and asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? When Sarah laughs, God does not challenge or rebuke Sarah. He asks Abraham, why did she laugh? He's holding Abraham responsible and accountable for her laughter in disbelief. It's like God himself cannot believe that Abraham didn't tell her. It's like he's looking at him. Why did she laugh? Dude, seriously, you didn't tell her? That's what's going on here? And Abraham says nothing. He's silent. And so Sarah has to answer for herself and she denies that she laughed because she's now afraid, because she understands that she's now in the presence of the Lord. But to her denial, the Lord says, no, you did laugh. You laughed. God corrects her. God corrects her. But he leaves it there without further judgment. It's almost as if God is saying, yeah, no, you laughed. I understand why you laughed. And yeah, I can't believe Abraham didn't tell you this is going to happen but you laughed and you also need to take responsibility. You need to trust me more because nothing is too impossible for me. So the question, where is Sarah your wife? Where is Sarah your wife? It highlights this relationship and it's as if God is doing a little bit of marriage counseling here. You can imagine what the relationship must be like these days. Abraham has become a father through a second wife, Hagar. And while Abraham might enjoy having another wife and another child, a son around him, it has to be an incredibly painful reminder, additional you know, burden uh, on Sarah. And so when Sarah hears that she will bear a son next year, she laughs to herself. But then she also says, you know, I'm old, he's old, right? But then she also adds, shall I have pleasure? Now, we understand they're old, and so biologically, that's a big problem in terms of uh, having a child. But this extra remark, shall I have pleasure? Uh, as Robert Alter and others have pointed out, this word pleasure is a cognate of Eden in Hebrew, and it suggests conjugal complaint. That they haven't had a child is not only because they're old, but because they have not had the kind of physical and relational intimacy that makes a child possible. 
the creational intent of God was for the man and the woman, the husband and wife, to be one, and that has been lost on them, as it has been lost on Adam and Eve and every other couple ever since, even terrific Tom and Giselle. Where is Sarah, your wife? Is an effort to bring Abraham and Sarah closer together. This is a question not only for married couples. Whenever someone doesn't come to our church, for example, or someone comes without their spouse or without their children, this is a question that we ask. It's the same question, right? Or we ought to ask this question. It's a way of entering into each other's lives to find out what's going on, to connect. Not an opportunity for gossip, but to be engaging in deeper conversations for admission and even confession. Perhaps it surprises you that God is interested in what appears to be perhaps only small marital squabbles. But God is invested. He's very invested in how Abraham and Sarah will keep their promises of faithfulness not only to God, but to each other. This is how God is going to work out his plans. The promise of God will be fulfilled in the birth of Isaac. But it required that Abraham and Sarah be together. To be more blunt, they will have a child, not in some magical way, but in the ordinary and yet miraculous way that every life is conceived. The birth of Isaac becomes possible as they are reconciled and that she is no longer in the tent by herself. When we get to the birth in chapter 21, we see that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. The Lord kept his promise. The Lord kept his promise not just to Abraham, but to Sarah. And they named their son Isaac, meaning laughter, or he laughs, because God has turned both of their laughters, this kind of a scoffing, mocking laughter, into a laughter of genuine joy, of immense joy. As Sarah testifies, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. This is a story not only of God keeping his promise, but one in which Abraham and Sarah must also keep their promises to each other. Only as that relationship is mended can there be descendants and blessings and genuine laughter. The promise of a child named laughter reminds us that God's desire for us is joy. But that joy comes to us as we keep faith and faithfulness to God and to each other. Now, Abraham and Sarah, they're going to have many more bumps along the way in their relationship. Abraham's going to continue to not tell Sarah some important stuff that he should have told her uh, along the way. But we also know that they remain deeply committed to each other until the very end. When we get to the 23rd chapter of Genesis, that entire chapter is devoted to the death and burial of Sarah. Most deaths and burials, even of men, don't get as much attention. And it suggests the high esteem in which Sarah is to be held both in the scriptures and by Abraham. So this story for us today 
it's not an illustration of what a perfect marriage or a perfect family looks like or what great faith can look like either. Rather, I think it holds out for us the hope of reconnection, of renewed faith, that even those relationships that are strained and broken can be repaired. It's not that God cannot fulfill his promises to us, such as the blessings of all the families, in any other way. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing can thwart God's good and perfect will. It's not that God needs perfectly obedient and faithful people to accomplish his purposes. On the contrary, as the saying goes, God draws straight lines with a crooked stick. But God does want to fulfill his promises in and through the participation of those who are less than perfect, those who are less than always faithful. It's an ongoing invitation. I imagine all of us have things going on in our lives, people in our relation, uh, in relationships that we are tempted today to scoffingly laugh at because we cannot imagine how they can be changed or improved upon. We've kind of resigned ourselves to some of this brokenness as this is just the way it's gonna be. And I think as you get older, you become increasingly resigned to these kinds of facts. I know that I have relationships in my life, in my extended family, uh, with friends and colleagues and members of this church that I sometimes laugh at in hopelessness. I want to deny it, but God calls me out on it. No, you laughed. You did laugh. So this morning, I would remind you and myself I would invite you once again to place your trust in the one for whom nothing is too difficult and to recommit yourselves to those relationships in faithfulness. So the next time someone asks, where's Larry? Where's Laura? Remember that it's where's Larry, your brother? Where's Laura, your sister in Christ, to whom you made a commitment and with whom you are the one body of Christ? Let's work toward a better and fuller answer than she's in the tent. I don't know. Let's hear those questions as an ongoing and open invitation to enter into deeper conversation into vulnerable admission, and if necessary, to confession. Let's take these opportunities to ask, to answer, and renew our commitments to one another and to God. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are God who is always looking for us. And even though we want to hide and avoid and deny, you call us out, not in condemnation, but in invitation. 
And so God, help us to ask of ourselves, who's not here today? Help us to begin to enter into those conversations so that together we might be more welcoming, that together we might fulfill the call that you have given us as your body in this church. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.